Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation. It's Friday, December 29th. I'm Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us. Hawaii Talks. It's our final show for 2023, so we've got a hanaho of our staff favorites from this year. We'll reshare a powerful moment in time, the opening of an exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., featuring Hawaii's deposed queen. In 2023, the MacArthur Foundation tapped a kumuhula to continue innovation and creativity in his field. We'll reshare our interview with Patrick Makuakane, winner of what some call the Genius Grant. And why was a polar bear walking the streets of Honolulu at the start of this year? We'll return to our interview with a woman on a mission to raise awareness about global warming. Plus, we revisit how rap music gave Hilo's sudden rush a platform to shine a light on local culture and issues. Support for HPR comes from Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin January 22nd. More by searching O-L-L-I-U-H-M. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Mark Matusik, author of Lessons from an American Stoic. Next time on New Dimensions, I'm going to be talking about how the wisdom of Ralph Waldo Emerson can change your life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at mobi.com. You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It is our last show of 2023, so we're bringing you a hanaho of staff favorites from this year. And we start out with the historic moment in Washington, D.C. Hawaii Public Radio was fortunate to be there when a gold-leaf frame portrait of Queen Liliuokalani was welcomed as part of a new exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery this past May. It was entitled 1898. U.S. Imperial Visions and Revisions. The show is to close in February. A group from Hawaii, which included members of the Hawaiian Benevolent Societies and staff from Iolani Palace and the Hawaii State Archives, also made the trip to hear the telling of the political stories behind the portraits. For those in the room that day, it was a mix of pride and pain. In a private gathering before the official public opening, the Hawaii contingent chanted the Queen's genealogy and sang Hawaii Pono'i. Throughout, tears flowed as the music haunted the halls of the portrait gallery. the Queen's story presented. Here's co-curator Kate Clark-LeMay leading a pre-opening tour for national media. 
Queen Lilia Kalani inherited a throne that was troubled. In 1893, her reign was overthrown through a coup d'etat. And this was a coup that was organized by Anglo businessmen, if you'll follow me, um, who were descendants of the first missionaries from New England. And this is a portrait of Harriet Bradford Tiffany Stewart, who came over to Hawaii from New England in 1823. She was on the second boat of missionaries. Some of their descendants included Lauren Thurston, who was the mastermind behind the overthrow. And he organized with other Anglos uh, the so-called Committee of Safety, and then overthrew the Hawaiian government. And this was not without a lot of resistance, obviously, from the native Hawaiians. This beautiful quilt, you can see the flag of Hawaii that surrounds the coat of arms of the Hawaiian kingdom. And so people would gather, loyalists would gather, and they would have this as a symbol in their home to symbolize their own allegiance to their queen. They also could see that in 1898, the annexation was coming. They, the people of Hawaii were uh, very aware that this is a momentum that was building. And so in 1897, they organized the Ku'e petitions, which consisted of 27,000 signatures of men and women, Native Hawaiians, who did not want to uh, become annexed to the United States, which was through joint resolution that it means a total vote count of both House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. So that is not a ratified treaty. And people to this day are participating in the Hawaiian sovereignty movement because they believe that that is not a legal annexation. We know the Queen's request to be reinstated fell on deaf ears and Hawaii would be annexed and the monarchy would come to an end. The telling of the Queen's story in this federal museum was deeply felt. From the moment that we went in that first morning to conduct our protocol and our blessing, it was just overwhelming and emotional. And you know, you could just feel the mana of the queen in the room. And you know, that portrait is so powerful and it's hopeful that the story that we have to share will be shared amongst others and realizing that, you know, we're not the only ones that have the same story. You know, the others from Puerto Rico, from Cuba, from the Philippines, uh, from Guam. You know, we all share the same story. You know? And then hopefully the truth of that will come to light. You know, I keep thinking that I just saw this quote. In order to right a wrong, we must shed the light of truth. So it's my hope that this exhibit will shed light of truth. We also just saw the Kuei petitions and, and it, it was very impressive for those that had family members who signed that thing. Um, I don't know, just your thoughts on being able to see the original documents. Again, another powerful moment um, this weekend. So I, I actually requested for one of the pages uh, of my great grandmother, Josephine Ayu. Uh, just so happened when the page came out, um, Ikaika Bantolina came next to me and he pointed down to a name. He goes, oh, that's my tutu. And literally just above Ikaika's tutu was my tutu. Uh, so, and they were both named Josephine. So it was, it, it was 
an aha moment for both of us, but just the fact that these pages are here and we actually saw you know, um, the signatures. So that was another wow moment for me personally, uh, that I actually have Coco on that paper. That was Arthur Ayu of the Royal Order of Kamehameha, who was there in Washington, D.C. this past May for the opening of the 1898 exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery. Other members shared their pride in seeing the handwriting on the fragile pages of the Kue petitions, including Ikaika Bantolina. So who is it in your family that has signed this? Josephine Wahinikapu. She's on my maternal side. Um, she then married a Mali'i couple. The Wahine couples are from Kohala and Kona area as well as Hana and um, Kahakuloa. And finding these names out, like, there's a lot of Wahine couples, but this particular one, she's in my genealogy, so she's my kupuna. And how old was she when she signed? 21, yeah. And another member's eyes scanned the documents looking for his relative's signature. Just one entry, a last name, and the age when the document was signed. Payo. This person was 65 years old who wrote this, but I'm not sure if it's Kanye Wahine. But it's your relative, your family. Yeah, it's my, it's my last name, this. <laughs> And then your first name is? Russell. You're Russell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No first name or no? Well, in the olden days, they only had one name, and most of them, you see, only get one name. Majority is one, this, this is 1897. And I'm like, no, what is the significance of this name? Because this, this last name is related to our last name. And so all your family knew is that they signed this petition? Well, I found when I went through the book, you know, the Kuwait petition, I went through the whole book, look all the people that I know and let them know, are you guys family name, right? It's in the book, and I mark all the pages. But my page, my page number is different from this page number. I don't know why, because when Adam asked me, hey, send me your page again, I did, I have a different, oops, I have a different page number on top. And there you go, trying to make sense of Hawaii's history. And so we leave you as the group left the exhibit with one last tribute. The Queen's song, O Makalapua, talks about making a flower lay for Hawaii's queen.
Ilalone. We'll continue with our favorite interviews of 2023 right after this short break. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors installing Daikin products, that's D-A-I-K-I-N, at CostcoHawaii.com. Live music is back at HPR's Atherton Studio. Join us every Saturday night in January at the Atherton in Honolulu for live classical music from Barton Nascalo duo Gaylord DeWald, Sean Conley, and Tommy Morrison. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. You're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Let's continue with our favorite 2023 interviews with a story about an award that falls like pennies from heaven. The MacArthur Foundation selects a handful of people at the top of their fields every year to support from arts to the sciences. This year it tapped Kumuhula Patrick Makuakani as one of its fellows. His San Francisco Halau regularly performs at the Palace of Fine Arts in the city by the bay, as well as at the Burning Man Arts Festival in the desert. That's where Makuakani says he got a time-sensitive text back in September. All I got was a text message saying that we haven't returned our calls and we're trying to reach you. This is the MacArthur Foundation and calling you with a time-sensitive, confidential matter. And that came through as a text, because I didn't receive their calls. I'm in Burning Man. There is no cell service, really. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is the MacArthur Foundation calling me for? You know, and uh, I never reached her. It took, like, days of calling back and forth and not getting in touch with her and her not getting in touch with me. Finally, like, five days later, I, I got back to San Francisco, and I got, she told me why she was calling. I'm like, oh, my God, what the hell? <laughs> it, was just, it was shocking. Well, yeah. I had visions of you at Burning Man in the mud, you know, making mud angels because you were so thrilled at hearing the news. Yeah. But you didn't really well, know didn't until. Know. Yeah, but I didn't really know. I, okay, so you, you try to, like, think, why isn't my classic foundation calling me? Am I kidding? I'm like, no, I can't be. I must owe the money. Do I owe the money? What, what's going on here? So I didn't really know, and it was frustrating. And walking in that mud, it's like your foot gets stuck with every step. I had to go back to camp and wrap my boots in plastic bags. It was crazy. Yeah, usually, Burning Man, you have dust in every orifice. You got back home and then discovered you won. Um, a MacArthur Fellow. You know, it's like, might as well win an Oscar. How, how is this supposed to happen? How do they even know who I am and what I do? 
you know, it's, it was baffling and just <laughs> an incredible amount of gratitude. Yeah, it was a shocker. Well, the pressure's on now because I was thinking the last time we talked, you had just gotten a grant to do Mahu, and yeah. that show was spectacular. I mean, oh, my goodness, just to have Mahu in San Francisco and then to have yeah. it come here, and it was such a wonderful production. Thank you. Yeah, I was very happy with that. I was really, really just extremely pleased, especially with the Hawaii production. Every time I do a show here in San Francisco, I mean, we're, we're very well received, and that's fortunate for us. But when I take it home to Hawaii, you know, it, you can't help it. People get you in a way that they can never get it over here because it's like it's that hometown idiosyncrasies that only us local people can understand, you know. So as much as people love it here, and they did, it's like uh, back at home, it's like I'm home. I get to be with my people, and it's just an exciting opportunity and to watch these transgender artists i told them i didn't want you to be background musicians for dancers i wanted you to be forefront and center and tell your stories but not the freaking encyclopedic version like bring it down wikipedia you guys talk too much (laughs) our show was supposed to be 50 minutes first half and 50 minutes second half was an hour and a half and like an hour and 20 minutes only ladies (laughs) it was down it was uh, so heartfelt and very powerful, Aww. you know, and I recall when we had talked a few years ago, you were planning to do something on the cruise lines and then the pandemic hit. And so that got stopped. But then we went in planning again, not for a cruise line, for uh, another opportunity. And yeah, so we're still working on that and seeing what happens. But what do you do with $800,000, Patrick? Wow. You know, this is so funny because I dipped my toes in the water possibility and then I take them out really fast and then I dip them again and take them out really fast it's like I decided to let myself just enjoy this time of being in a, a fellow and not worry about what I'm going to do with the money and I'll just let that happen naturally so the only thing that I really thought about so far was this will enable me to um, engage in uh, opportunities and collaborations with fellow Native Hawaiian artists whose work that I really admire and that inspire me. And I would love to support what they do. And, you know, and it's a collaboration. So I get a a lot of inspiration and art making out of that collaboration as well. So it's a win-win for both of us. And they're really some wonderful people that I can't wait to share their artistry with the world. For folks who don't know, this is not the type of fellowship that you apply for. You can't apply for this grant. No, right. You have to be nominated, and we don't know how the nomination process is. We have no idea who nominated us. I know that there's a strong vetting process that happens after you're nominated, but you have no idea. That's why when they call people, it's a shocker because you you didn't apply for it. You You have no idea if you get a call. And you know what's sweet is when we got together with the other fellows and the foundation the other day on Zoom, the MacArthur Foundation kept telling us how this is their favorite day the whole year to finally meet everyone because the joy, the jubilance is so palpable. It's just incredible. Yeah, off the charts, I I can imagine. Yeah. How can you not be? And I have to say, you know, there are people in here who are nuclear physicists and and mathematicians and social justice and environmental work. Things are really important to like shifting our world to making it a better place. And then there's hula. (laughs) And you know what? Hula does the same thing. It's just as important as all those other disciplines. And that makes me really, really proud, 
proud of Hula, proud of my culture, and thankful to all my kum and my ancestors. It's, I say it takes a village to raise a kum. And, you know, to think, really, by you getting this honor, you honor them. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I couldn't have done it without them. I stand on the shoulders of so many people, and I cannot even express the gratitude that I have to the countless of people who have helped to get me to this point where I am today. And really to San Francisco, who provided me a place where I felt unshackled, <laughs> but yet always grounded by Hawaii. I've never, never felt once that I, I was apart from home. I've always felt tethered to the mothership, so to speak. But being here in San Francisco, which is really a city that celebrates expression and art and also funds you in a way that Hawaii never could. You know, that's the other thing. It's the funding here, once you tap into the system, it's extraordinary. If you have work that proves to be something that people want to see, that has an aesthetic appeal. And I think for us, because we have this tradition as well as this contemporary outlook, people really appreciate that. And I'm currently trying to reframe this conversation around tradition as something that's stuck and mired in a certain place in time, you know, as a static symbol of heritage and culture, because tradition is really, it's not. It's dynamic. It changes. It shifts with the environment. And in order for us to be vibrant and culturally relevant, things have to change over time. And I recognize how innovative our ancestors were and even the hula ancestors, when you look back at all the old hula that we don't have today, I mean, there was so much innovation in the art form. And it makes me look like a kindergartner dancing hula. Please, people think I'm innovative. They should look back at all these other hulas that our ancestors were teaching and crafting. Well, you know, I was just thinking, would this grant help you expand your reach? You know, because I was thinking of the Mahu show and, you know, gosh, if you could travel. Yeah, it would. I mean, I would love to take Mahu on the road. It deserves to be seen that way. So it can do that. And the other thing I loved, because we were really well funded in San Francisco for the Mahu show. Out of the 20 years that we've been applying for our home season, Mahu was the most funded out of all of them because it really resonated with organizations. Because at the time, there's a national discussion about trans rights and the, the vitriol that was thrown against this community. So people really felt that this was an important show. And my point with Mahu was not to go out there on stage with a rallying cry and a strident call for justice. It was like, you know what? All I have to do is let them sing, dance, tell their stories, and be their authentic selves. And after that's over, how can you not? How can you not deny them their humanity and a seat at the table? Because they are such extraordinary people that you would want them there because they belong there. They make us better. And of course, I'm preaching to the choir at San Francisco. <laughs> well, um, the art is but, just so uplifting. And, yeah. you know, your productions, I think, are brilliant, if, if I can throw my two cents in there. And, oh, and well, so, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, so I would love to share my talented Mahu friends with the world. <laughs> so I guess you're, you're just going to massage this then to figure out where do you go from here? Yeah. And then I'm been sort of like mired in several different projects. I'm doing that Hiyaka play, and I'm also going to be directing an opera in 2020, is it 2026, for the Hawaii Opera Theater about Hawaiian patriot Timoteo Ha'alelio. It will be the first opera put on by Ha, the Hawaii Opera Theater, in Olelo, Hawaii, in Hawaiian language. And I am super excited and privileged to be working on that production. Wow. 
So yeah, lots of things you've got to get off your to-do list before you can figure out then where else you go right. with this MacArthur grant. Yeah, right, exactly. You're yeah. a busy so man. It's a good problem to have. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, gosh, I don't know. A- anything else you want to share with your audience? Yes, I, I... I have something kind of really super freaking awesome to what? tell you. So one of our signature pieces is We Dance a Hula to Roberta Flack's First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. And we performed it with Roberta Flack many years ago because she saw a YouTube clip of us dancing. And her manager is from Hawaii. So that's how the connection was made. Long story short, last year, December, I read online that Roberta Flack had ALS and she couldn't sing anymore. And I called her manager to say, oh, my God, and just to offer my support and condolences. I was just really heartbroken to hear about that. And her manager told me that, yeah, she has a, a breathing tube. She can't speak. She has a feeding tube. The only way she can communicate is by looking at you and holding your hand. And she goes, the only thing right now that really sort of gives her support and light is art. Her friends come over to her place to either sing or play for her. And that's what really sustains her to make this life livable. And I'm like, wow. Then she asked, by the way, are you going to be in New York in the next month? I'm like, uh, Suzanne, if you're asking me if I would be willing to perform for Roberta Flack, just tell me that date and I'll be there. So I took six dancers. We performed in Roberta Flack's home for an audience of one in her living room. And there were a few other people there, but for us, we did a 30-minute set for Roberta Flack. And it was just one of the most memorable things we've ever done at the Hollow. Blew me away. Well, Patrick, that story is so powerful because I just mentioned Roberta Flack's situation because... We had just talked with our general manager, Jose Fajardo, who has ALS. And oh, uh, many people don't know, you know, what you go through when you're struggling oh, with this. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. So, so I thank you for sharing that story about Roberta Flack. And, oh, you're very welcome. Uh, yeah. You know, someone who is like the last chapter of their life is like coming upon them. And yet they're still, they're not going to lie down and go quietly. They still want to like enjoy whatever last vestiges of light and art that they can. And I just, what a way to like approach life. I'm, I hope that I'm that strong when my time comes. Well, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your art, for your talent, for what you do, for those special moments that uh, you share with us, you know, whether with someone like Roberta Flack or, you know, with the crowd, you know, with the Mahu Productions. Um, thank you for what you do, Patrick. I really appreciate that. Thank you for the conversation. Aloha. That was Patrick Makuakane Kumuhula, who was just selected as a MacArthur Foundation Fellow. The prize comes with an $800,000 grant over a five-year period and honors creativity and innovation. The first time ever I saw Many were surprised this past February to see a seven-foot-tall Alaskan polar bear puppet trekking around Honolulu. It was an effort to raise awareness about climate change and highlight her plight as a climate refugee. The story, Melting Sea Ice, has forced a mother bear to leave her cubs alone in search of a safer, sustainable home. Here are reactions from surprise onlookers along Kalakaua Avenue. My name is Emiliano. I'm a freshman from Milani High School. Uh, I like polar bears. I think that it's messed up that they be taking their environment and stuff. We should protect the polar bears at all costs. 
I'm Mirko from Italy. It's fun to see something different that catches your eye while you are walking on a beautiful place like uh, Honolulu. Definitely it's not just a piece of art. It makes you think what might be the reason behind it. Could be just to make people smile or maybe it's a more serious cause like global warming, you know, the, the weather changing, the impact that uh, it has on uh, species like them. Ultimately, us and next generations like uh, my daughters here. My name is Khan. I'm originally from Europe, from Belgium, but I've actually been living here for 17 years. Hawaii is an environmental place, so I would think that having a polar bear here, it's kind of strange in a way because Hawaii doesn't necessarily have Obviously, polar bears doesn't have them, but nonetheless, it is a very good symbol that I think everybody can recognize for the environment. My name is Konatsu. I'm from Japan. At first, I was really surprised. I thought it's uh, one of the YouTubers even. <laughs> but maybe most people think when they see the polar bear in Hawaii, wow, it's really strange to see the polar bear in Hawaii. But I think it's a really good idea to promote, motivate people, to make people think about the environment and uh, our motivation to support some activity to protect the environment so i'm uh, happy yeah i'm glad to see her yeah we are from indianapolis indiana Winter. cold snow it was like 20 degrees it was snowing on friday yeah Nate, yeah what was your reaction to so we saw her walking down the street and the mechanics, the blinking eyes and the mouth and that was very cool. And the cloth that she's made of, it was very pretty. It was interesting. It was very cool. Uh, my name is Concerned Citizen. I live here. To me it's like art. Someone's trying to make a statement of something. Probably extremist climatic response. Now here we go. I also wanted to get unobstructed video of this. This is pretty cool. So whoever's doing this, you know, I mean, I'm sure they got their heart in it. You have to, right? <laughs> Visual storyteller and designer Kathleen Doyle is a creative mind behind the polar bear puppet named Kwanuk Nanuk. Its name means snowflake in the indigenous language of the Yuktuk tribe. Doyle spoke with the conversations Lillian Song about the project, which began almost three years ago to the day for the American Museum of Natural History's International Polar Bear Day. What's so fun about this project for me is that as a theater maker and a puppet designer, a costume designer, like a theater maker, it's really exciting to create this kind of pop-up event. It's a theatrical event, but it's outside of the proscenium and it's interacting with folks who didn't intentionally go to the theater that day. But it's really... I don't know, it just really reminds me of like the power of theatricality, the power of puppets, the power of spectacle to connect us and to approach each other peacefully, to find this common ground that we all find like some kind of delight and curiosity in. And it's short. You know, it's not like we're asking someone to come to a three-hour opera. So that... From a theater maker perspective, that's super satisfying and, and exciting. Mm. You're just very much in the moment. You didn't know who was going to be in Waikiki. Right, right. Just some highlights. What was it you were saying that your Wrangler mentioned some surfers? Mm -hmm. What was that about? 
So a friend of mine from Honolulu Theater for Youth, who also I brought out to New York to the American Museum of Natural History because she acted in my show out there. So it's life is so funny how we're all connected. And she said, let me wrangle for you today. And so she was walking with us, and I couldn't tell what was going on because I was in the rear legs of the beer. Later, she told me, there's all these cool surfer dudes, local kids, and I saw them put down their boards and like approach us and like leave the beach and leave the sand and come out to the sidewalk. And I just laughed like, no, that's high praise. <laughs> and she said, I know, because, you know, I thought they would be too cool for school. And they just kept watching quietly. And then finally they asked her, hey, is it OK, you know, if we get a picture? And I thought, okay, okay, that makes me happy because it's one thing for, you know, moms and dads to say, can we pull our stroller up next to the bear? But it's different for cool teenagers, you know, to put down their surfboards and come to over. To walk away from the waves for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And to come hang with you guys. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm. And it's also connected, you know, the, the waves. And she's the sea bear. So that... That was encouraging. Yeah. Oh, this is wonderful, Kathleen. If anything, it feels like Hawaii is just one of the many chapters for Snowflake as, you know, you have just created a, a beautiful, gentle character to raise the awareness of the public, of the plight of the polar bear. And at the same time, not only educating, but also bringing joy. I have to say, as I was following you, so many people were just smiling and you know, stopping to pause from what they were doing on Kalakaua to wonder. I'm sure you really planted many seeds of polar bear in Waikiki. Hmm. What's that about? Well, Kwanuk Nanuk is a polar bear creation. And in this world, she has become a climate refugee due to the climate crisis and melting sea ice and what melting sea ice means for polar bear populations. So she is in a desperate situation to find food and to stay alive. So she has abandoned her baby cubs in a desperate search for a sustainable climate. And she is searching throughout this country and she's somehow swum all the way down here to Hawaii to the Pacific Ocean and um, she has arrived this is not an ideal climate for polar bears but at the moment there is not an ideal climate for polar bears but she's receiving a warm welcome we are hoping to visit many beautiful incongruous locations for polar bears. And that includes this morning our first jaunt to Waikiki Beach. We'll go to the Botanical Gardens. We've been invited to the Hawaii State Art Museum, Hi Sam. To the State House, Representative Lisa Martin reached out. Hanama Bay is on our list. We'd like to go to the North Shore. We would like to kind of visualize the narrative that she has swum here, washed up on these beautiful beaches, ambled her way through the greens and the hibiscus and this beautiful but chaotic environment for her, and then landed in the cityscape of Honolulu and Waikiki and greater Oahu. 
This project is underway, going on until the 25th, so into the weekend. Mm-hmm. And if people do happen to see this seven-foot <laughs> polar bear ambling through the streets, that message that you really want to underscore. Here's an animal, a climate refugee of a different species than our own, but equally worthy of our compassion and our concern, our care, and our urgent attention. And she, by her very presence, is is reaching out to us, is gently pleading to us by her simply by her presence that she's in need and animals like her are tragically, you know, affected by the climate crisis. Mm. It's been about five years, really, just since I've been here last. And I'm hoping to, to interact with local folks and share something I've came so far, and you know, it was it's a very exciting and beautiful effort to figure out how to get here. And the Puffin Foundation sponsored me to come here with a grant. So I also have such like warmth for the Hawaiian people that I have met, and certainly my colleagues at HTY, Honolulu Theater for Youth. So I want to share this idea with school kids, with random folks on the street, with the folks at the state house, at museums, at the beaches, wherever people might gather and have have a moment. I don't want to interrupt anyone's work day, you know, but have a moment to to smile. And you know, hopefully the project is whimsical and joyful and hopeful and not threatening or scary or depressing, but that it just encourages some some love. That was Kathleen Doyle talking with HPR's Lillian Song about a pop-up polar bear puppet, a climate change refugee who was on a mission to raise awareness about global warming. We'll return to our best of 2023 Hanaho show after a short break. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. HPR's corporate relations team is growing. We're looking for an experienced media sales professional who is community-minded and loves HPR to join our team as a corporate relations associate. If you excel at new business development, enriching existing relationships, and ensuring client satisfaction, we want to hear from you. Apply by December 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training, and the Rice Partnership.
Welcome back to The Conversation. We're continuing our Hana Ho show featuring our favorite interviews of the year by celebrating hip-hop's 50th anniversary in 2023. The musical art form started in New York and has seen its influence grow around the world. Here in Hawaii, Hilo's Sudden Rush is widely recognized as the first group to record Namele Paleoleo, or the combination of hip-hop with native Hawaiian rapping. Sudden Rush was formed in 1993 by Caleb Richards and Shame Vincent. They later added fluent Hawaiian speaker Keala Kaba'auhau Jr. and producer Rob Onakea. From 1994 to 2018, they released four albums. Over that time, their focus evolved from emulating the popular gangster rap of the 1990s to perpetuating the importance of Hawaiian culture and commenting on local political issues. The conversations Russell Subiano got the chance to reminisce with founding member Shane Vincent last October. What's your first memory of hip-hop making an impression on you? If I'm not mistaken, that would be the early 80s, I believe, 81 or 82, I think, summer fun. I was just a, a kid when we were first hearing, you know, the likes of Run DMC. The Fat Boys probably left the biggest impression, I think, for me. I really liked listening to the Fat Boys. They were fun to watch. And I think I started writing where I would listen to their rap and then kind of change the words to match, you know, the time and space that we live in here, yeah? So kind of taking the flow that I was hearing and just putting words to it that my friends could laugh at or get into, yeah? So yeah, I started writing. That's probably intermediate, maybe before that. But I know by high school, I was able to freestyle yeah, I was pretty good at freestyle. I think by the time I hit my freshman year in high school, we'd do that during the recess, you know, some ciphers. We'd, you know, get a circle together and somebody beatbox and just flip, yeah, to see how long you could keep your freestyle going. Do you remember anything that you've written from back in those days? Can you still recite any of it? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing's coming to mind right now. I remember experimenting with writing rap back in the day as well. My ability to rhyme was very simplistic, so I think I would probably be embarrassed to unearth anything from that point in time. I think rap in general was, was kind of simple back then, yes? Yeah? Right. I think the rhyming schemes and, and the word usage has definitely become much more complex as time yeah, has sure. gone on. From what I can tell on the internet, Sudden Rush formed in 1993 and released its first album in 1994, Nation on the Rise. How did you and Caleb and Kiala and Rob, how did you guys all connect to form Sudden Rush? Okay, so Sudden Rush was me and my Wahana from Paneva, Paneva Hawaiian Homes here in Hilo. Friends and family was just a bunch of us boys from the hood who would write verses and, and you know, we put together enough songs to be able to perform at underground parties. 
And that's actually where I met Caleb. I met Caleb at a party in Panaeva, and he came up to me while I was sitting down rolling an herb. <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, I rap too, you know. Oh, yeah? I said, try bus. So he, he did a verse, and it was, it was a dope verse. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Caleb actually worked at Temple Music in the Principal Hill Plaza, so he had access to... All of the new singles back then, the new singles would come out with A side and B side. Mm -hmm. So you would have, you know, the song and then the instrumentals for a lot of the music that was coming out at the time. So he would bring to the house, he'd bring a, a lot of the instrumentals that, you know, whatever new instrumentals were hitting the shelves, he would bring to the house and we would try and write songs to those instrumentals. And we did a couple songs and then we entered the talent show at the... Hilo County Fair, and we won that. And Captain Craig, who was a radio distrocky at the time, was one of the judges for the talent show. And he ended up putting us on a card he had at the Hilo Hawaiian a few weeks later with Brother Nolan and Hoi Kane. So that was our first gig we opened up for them. And then one night we were playing at a party, and a friend of ours, Ethan Malomota, very good friend of mine, came up to us and asked us if we wanted to do an album and then suggested that we get together with Keala to create some music. So that's that's what we did. I think I showed up at Keala's house one day with, with a sleeping bag and two weeks later we had a bunch of songs done and we were going on a, on a little island tour. I've heard a similar story from videos that I've watched on the internet from Keala that you and Caleb were sudden rush first and, and that he was brought into the fold a, a little bit later on. At what point did you guys decide to incorporate Olala Hawaii into your verses? That was Keala, so I cannot speak the language. I've been trying to learn, but I'm, I'm fragmented. Yeah, Keala was a student at the time, UH Hilo, in Hawaiian language. And Keala actually, I think, played the most significant role in regards to us Staying rooted in where we live, yeah, our culture, our story as a people. So Caleb and I, we were we were different. I, I think we were because we were from the gangster rap era, you know, and we were young and holoi, you know, we'd get into trouble. So the way that we created was different from what Keala was bringing to the table. If you listen to some of our early early stuff, you know, Rec Shop dropped the bomb. It, not really the island-friendly content that we evolved into creating, yeah. But for sure, the Olelo was for sure Keala, keeping us grounded, keeping us rooted in the time and space we live, yeah, here in Hawaii. It was definitely Keala. Like I said, we were more young wannabe gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> when Sudden Rush evolved into the group that was known for rapping about Hawaii and Hawaii issues and doing it in Olelo Hawaii. You guys were innovators, that you were the first. Yeah. You guys were the first Hawaii rappers. What was the public's reception to you guys incorporating Olelo Hawaii and Hawaii themes into your music? I think there was there was a lot of a good, I think, feedback that came out of it. I think there was also... My uncle actually, Kaulana Napua. I remember my uncle was telling me, oh, I heard you guys knew, knew one, yeah, Kaulana Napua. Oh, yeah, yeah. So how come you guys f*** that song up? <laughs> 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 oh, so, yeah, 
there were for sure people who felt that we were crossing a line. But I think we understood that it was the means to get another generation to hear music, to hear a message that they otherwise weren't going to receive from the music and the way that it was made before us. Yeah, I know that much of hip-hop's legacy in general is giving a voice to the marginalized, to the overlooked, to the oppressed. And we heard that most notably, I think, with groups like N.W.A. and Public Enemy. Did you guys feel like your music was important to share these things about Hawaii and about our lives here that maybe nobody really knew about? For sure. So, you know, despite our interest in, you know, gangster rap, which was the predominant form of rap music at the time, there was also an understanding in hip-hop at the time that you keep it real. Keep it real was a huge part of hip-hop. I think today it's kind of become a fake-it-till-you-make-it industry. Back then, you know, like there was a lot of talk about studio gangsters, you know, and, and keeping it real. So I think that we definitely tried to do that. You mentioned NWA and Public Enemy. Public Enemy is for sure one of the biggest influences as far as hip-hop at the time on the way that we created, yeah? Chuck D and the political message that they had in a lot of their music. Going back to the, the keeping it real thing, I think that means... We're creating content that people here could identify, whether it was political or just good time, yeah, party kind of stuff, whatever it was. I think it was important for us to create music that people here could identify with. We had friends who met a bunch of friends, different groups who were doing hip-hop at the time. And I think, yeah, everybody doing it back then was kind of creating the way we were hearing music from the States, yeah. We got some traction, but it wasn't easy. Yeah? It wasn't always accepted, but we were having fun with it, for sure. We, we enjoyed what we were doing. I think maybe in some ways you guys were ahead of your time because I listened back to your music in today's context and a lot of the issues and a lot of the messages that you had early on are things that kind of mm -hmm. lit a little fire that, that kind of ended up in these protests at TMT and others since then. What are your thoughts on the legacy of your music? For sure. So in the universities for quite some time now, they've used our music as part of the program. It's part of the curriculum. I'd like to think that we help to instill a sense of pride in our home, in our culture, in our language. Back then, it was almost frowned upon that we were creating that way. Some people, I mean, I'd even use the term sell out. Some people felt like we were creating to get support yeah, from that niche market. But then if you look at music today, I think it's become kind of the in thing to do, Yeah, is to create music that brings awareness, which really, if you think about hip hop, you mentioned that earlier, yeah, the marginalized the oppressed, yeah, it was the voice of a people. It was the means to bring change through awareness. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of today, not just with hip-hop, but with music in general here in the islands. You know, there's reggae with Olelo now. You know, back then was Aipohaku. There's more groups doing music like that now. And I think that the message, especially after TMT, so post-2019, 
for sure hearing an influx of music addressing the plight of our people. Shane, thanks so much for your time, and I really enjoyed talking story with you about hip hop in Hawaii. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Right on, Russell. That was Sudden Rush's Shane Vincent talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Sudden Rush released its new album titled Kuokoa last month. It's their first since the passing of Keala Kaba'auhau Jr. in 2018. Well, that is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we'll hear from a local author who helps with New Year's resolutions to overcome the fear of public speaking. Call our talkback line. Leave us your comments. That's 808-792-8217 or email us at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website or at your favorite podcast store. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Mark Ladau. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.